0: Great to be together, uh, whether you're here in the worship center or you're in the family service over in the gym or maybe you're tuning in online, Um, we really need to be together. Uh, These are crazy times that we live in um, and not only do we need to gather around God's word, but it's important that we do that together as a community. So um, I'm glad you're here. Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in um, and you have a a Bible nearby. We're going to be digging into that. Uh, My prayer all along has been, uh, Lord, Speak, your servants are listening, and so I hope that's your heart this morning um, as we look into God's word together. So, all right. Well, hey, as we jump in, I don't know if you've ever come across one of those stories about like wealthy celebrities that something happens and they, they lose it all. Um, if you if you know what I'm talking about, it's kind of like a, a driving by a ten car pile up. You know that it's tragic, and you don't even want to look at it, but it's kind of hard to to, to look a, away. In fact, I saw a story um, not too long ago about wealthy celebrities that have lost it all and had to declare bankruptcy, or as they call it, Chapter 11, right? And so just a couple examples of this. Um, Nicolas Cage, um, he's the star of those national treasure movies that I um, love. But apparently, um, he lost his own treasure when he blew through $150 million buying homes all around the world, including two castles in Europe that he never even visited before he had to declare bankruptcy in two thousand. And nine, Or Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. At the height, they say that Mike Tyson was worth $300 million. Uh, but through one thing after another, drugs, domestic violence, divorce, prison, biting an opponent's ear off, um, eventually Mike Tyson um, lost it all because he was uh, um, a couple million dollars in debt and he had to file for chapter 11. Who can forget uh, the Central Valley's very own MC Hammer? So you got to be a certain age to remember MC Hammer. Uh, But Hammer was from this area. Um, Through a number of different circumstances, he lost not only his career, um, but he lost his mansion, a huge place, had dozens of servants, 17-car garage, and a swimming pool that was in the shape of the puffy pants that he used to wear. And Hammer lost it all. And I bring that all up. I'm not trying to make light of anyone's personal experiences or personal problems. Um, But whenever you see something like that, it makes you think, what happened, right? How do they go from having it all to watching it all fade away? And of course, it's not just famous celebrities that lose their money. I, I can think of far too many prominent Christian leaders in recent times who have shipwrecked their faith or their ministry And they put greed and power and sex and and popularity before God. And we see the wake of damage that that leaves behind. And of course, this isn't just a modern problem. This has been going on for a long time. And even back in 1945, in 1945, a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham burst onto the scene. Do you guys remember Billy Graham? Well, when Graham came onto the scene in 1945, he wasn't alone. There were these three kind of hot shot young uh, evangelists, uh, Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Braun Clifford. There's a, a picture of the three of them. In fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals wrote an article about people that are most being used by God around the world. And it made a list of all these people. And both Templeton and Braun Clifford were listed pretty far ahead of Billy Graham at that time. Little did they know that within five years, Templeton, who was once called the Babe Ruth of Preachers, the Babe Ruth of, of Preachers, he left his ministry to pursue a career in um, radio and movies, and before long, kind of one thing led to another, and he started to, to deny his faith, and eventually he abandoned uh, biblical Christianity and said, I, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, Within 10 years, Braun Clifford would actually lose his family, his career, his health to, to alcohol. He actually died in his 30s from cirrhosis of the liver. And as I was reading a little bit about that, one person said he died unwept, unhonored, and unsung. So in 1945, there are these three young men with extraordinary preaching gifts, preaching to thousands of people all around the world, and yet in the end, only one of them finishes strong with Christ. And it makes you wonder, what happened? How do they go from having it all to watching it fade away? Well, this morning, we're going to kind of dig into that question a little bit as we drive by the 10-car the pileup that is the end of King Solomon's uh, life. In fact, our passage is going to come from 1 Kings. So if you want to grab your Bible and open up to 1 Kings, ironically, we are in chapter 11 uh, today, which is a fitting chapter for uh, what happens to Solomon. Our series has been called The Man Who Has It All because that describes Solomon more than any other character in the Bible. Not only is Solomon known for his extraordinary wisdom, but his accomplishments. You guys, Solomon was the leader of Israel really at the height of, of any time in Israel's history. The strongest, the biggest, the proudest, the richest that it ever was, was under King Solomon. And yet, when you come to this part of his life today, today's message is called, The One Who Blew It All, because we see that so much of that is wasted and is gone. In fact, if you're find, kind of following the track of, of biblical history, it's it's really interesting to think about it like this, because uh, King David comes on the scene, and the, the, the rise of the kings come at a, a real low point in Israel's history. And in comes King David, and they begin to, to come up, and King David and King Solomon, and that's a high point. But you get to the end of Solomon's life, and almost immediately after that, we see that Israel is right back in the very place that they started. And so it's kind of heartbreaking, and it makes you ask the question, what happened? How did he go from having it all to seeing it all fade away? And we're going to dig into that question today. So we're actually going to start in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. I'm going to read kind of a long passage. We'll have it up here on the screen, but encourage you to look on your uh, Bible if you have one as well. 1 Kings 10, verse 26, we read kind of the account of Solomon's reign, and it says this. It says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. That seems like a lot. He kept them in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the foothills. Solomon horses were imported from, from where? from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. Apparently Solomon didn't use a coupon or anything to buy these horses. He paid full price for them. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. King Solomon chapter 11 says this, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods or their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same thing for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and I love that God calls Solomon out on his attitude. He's like, This is your attitude, young man. Um, you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And history shows that almost immediately after Solomon dies and his reign is over, we see that the nation of Israel is torn into two kingdoms. And there's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And for the next, several hundred years. Not only is there infighting among the, 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 the two tribes or two kingdoms of, of, of Israel and Judah, but we see time and time again they face pressure from, from outside, kind of moral decay, and before long the northern and then eventually the southern kingdom are both destroyed by foreign nations that come in, destroy uh, both places, and carry the people off into exile. And you wonder, what happened? How did they go from having it all to seeing it all fade away? How did the wheels fall off that bus so quickly? Especially for Solomon, who is known as wise, In fact, Solomon, we've talked about time and time again, was known for his wisdom. Well, what I want to do today is I want to dig into these attitudes that that God calls out in Solomon. There's so much that we can really learn. These are lessons from the attitudes that brought a good man like Solomon down. So we're going to look at three of them um, at least. There could be more as well. But the first one I want us to point out is that we look at Solomon's life. uh, Number one, a good man or a good woman is brought down by disbelief in God's promises, by a failure to continue to faithfully believe in God's promises. So anytime you study Solomon, and I've been talking to many of you about this over the last several weeks, anytime you you study Solomon, the question comes up about what's the deal with all of Solomon's wives, right? He has a thousand wives. Solomon's supposed to be the smartest man in the world. I'm not even that smart, and I know that that is a terrible idea, right? How do you even remember their names, much less their birthdays and anniversaries? I was thinking about this because, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be around town and I'll bump into to someone around town and they'll say, hi, Pastor Glenn, and oh, I'll recognize them, but I can't quite get to the name. And I'm, I'm so sorry if that happened. Please forgive me. I'm always so embarrassed when that happens. And that happened to Solomon with his wives, right? He's like, oh, your name again. And I know you from, oh, you're my wife. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> But I think for a lot of us, we assume that Solomon had lust or a sex problem, and that was really Solomon's downfall. And that was part of it. I, I, I'm sure that that was a significant part of it. But deeper than even his, the, his, the, the, this problem with lust or sex is a core problem that was a failure to trust God and really rely on him and trust in his word. In fact, you could make the argument that Solomon's problem was maybe 30% lust and 70% you say, how in the world do you come up with that, Pastor Glenn? Well, if you look at the, the passage, it tells us that Solomon had 700 wives of his thousand, seven hundred 700 of them were of royal birth and 300 were concubines. So in other words, 700 of them were princesses or, or women from royal birth from other countries. We talked about this the first week when we looked at Solomon, when we saw that he married the Egyptian pharaoh's daughter. And we said a lot of times those arrangements were not certainly romantic, Arrangements, but they were almost arrangements of politics or military security. So if you married the Pharaoh's daughter, you know, you were far less likely to be attacked by the Pharaoh. And so people kind of passed around like, like that, and it was almost like a strategic decision. Now, some of you may say, well, hey, if that kept the nation of Israel safe and, and Solomon was the king, you know, maybe that was a smart thing for him to, to marry those, those 700 foreign wives. And yet, we see that those 700 uh, foreign wives not only violate everything that God teaches about marriage and the marriage covenant, but specifically, we see that God has instructed the king to live differently. Here's one of the huge principles that we need to take away today God's people, back then and today, all of us here, are called to live differently than the culture around us. We're supposed to. And I'm not saying that with pride. I'm just saying that's what God calls us to do, to be known as as his people. And so God said to the Israelites, you're to to be different from all the nations around you, and one of the things you don't need to do is marry a bunch of wives for your protection. Because God's promise was always this, if you faithfully obey me, I will protect you. I will take care of you, right? Right? And so we see that Solomon collects all these wives, at least 70% of them were, you know, for this, this protection that God said he would take care of. Maybe you could argue that 30% of the concubines were for his pleasure. I don't know. But the, the point you see is, is that, failure, uh, that, that Solomon is brought down by a disbelief in God's promises. In fact, I want you to think about that long passage that we just read. And you don't have to remember all the details about it. But think about all of the wives that Solomon had. We know there were a thousand of those. Think about all of the horses and all of the chariots that were destroyed. Described and where they came from. Think about all of the wealth and all of the silver and the gold and the cedar that we have been reading about when we hear about Solomon. And I want you to keep your finger in 1 Kings 11. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look in the, the, the table of contents if you need to find Deuteronomy. It's uh, the fifth book in from the beginning there. And because I want you to see That there is uh, instruction that is given called God's law, and it's given to the people of Israel, but there's a special section that's given especially to the king of Israel. And I want you to see some of what it says. So I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16, 17, and then we'll look at verse 20. So the law given to the king, Deuteronomy 17, 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to where? To Egypt, to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And he must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold." Skip down to verse 20. It says, And, and the, the king should not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then his descendants will reign over a long time in his kingdom in Israel. And so you can make the argument, and it would be true, that the temptation that leads Solomon away is the girls, the gold, and the glory. Steve Newman's preached a a good sermon to a lot of young pastors about the girls, the gold, and the glory. So you hear that talked about, and you can make a case that that is the temptations that he fell into, the things that led him away. But I want to suggest that even deeper than that was a failure to believe the wisdom of God's law. The things that he knew were were true. So last week, if you were here, you tuned in online, uh, Pastor Stephen did a great job looking at the wisdom of Solomon. Didn't Stephen do a great job uh, last week? And one of the things he, he made the point was that Solomon's wisdom, maybe the thing that he, he was the, the wisest about, was, were the things about God. But Stephen made an excellent point, and he said, you could have all of the wisdom about God, but it's kind of like being an expert on a chair. And maybe you remember him saying this. It's kind of a simple, Illustration: The idea is, you can say, "I'm an expert on chairs. I know everything about them. I know how it's made. I know all about it." But until you actually sit down in the chair, you have not really expressed any true wisdom about the chair. And the same is true with our lives. But the same is true with Solomon. Think of how much wisdom and Solomon uh, wisdom and knowledge that Solomon had about God. But Solomon's problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. For Solomon, it wasn't a lack of information. For Solomon, it was an inability or a lack of faith to believe and to be brave and to have the resolve and the courage to sit down in the truth of God's law, even though he knew that it was going to make him very different than all the nations around him. All the other kings from all the other nations were accumulating wives as well. And maybe he felt that pressure. How could I be different from all of them? But remember the premise God's idea is that his people are supposed to look different. And so I just have a question for you this morning. I ask it myself all the time. Where do you need to trust God's word is true more? Not necessarily where do you need to learn more of God's word, that's certainly a thing. But the problem's probably not knowledge. Where do you need the courage? and the resolve to do what you already know is true from God's word. Pastor J.D. Greer, pastor in the, the East Coast who influenced a lot of this message um, today, um, said his uh, commonplaces that he brought up as he kind of addressed this to his church, he said there's kind of three main areas, or not three main, but three kind of common areas. And he talked about the, the area of relationships and romance. And if you look at God's word, you see that there's a lot of instruction about that. Instruction about who a, a person should yoke themselves to or tie themselves to is, is what the Bible talks about. And he says that that should be a, a person of the same faith, a, a Christian person, because, you know, so you're not pulling against each other. And then he gives real clear guidelines about sex, and he says this is his gift for a, for, for marriage. And yet, You say, I know all these things, but nobody does that old-fashioned stuff anymore. And we fall and we rush in and we rush out of relationships that are not good for us. And more importantly, just don't trust what God says to be true. Another area that that a lot of us, maybe we know what the Bible says, but it's just kind of hard to release control of, is the area of money. Money. And we think, okay, well, I know the Bible says that God owns it all. So That's really what the Bible teaches is that God owns everything, and he allows us to steward some of his resources. And so he says, be generous, live with an open hand, generous to people in need, generous to his church, generous to, the, to, you know, to his work around the world, those kind of things. And he says, uh, you know, a starting place is, is 10% to give a tithe. And we think, okay, I know the Bible says that, but whoa, that's a, that's a lot of dough. I mean, 10%. That, Think of all the things that, that I could do with that. In fact, I remember when Jannie and I were, were, were first married, and we didn't make hardly anything. I mean, we barely were, were getting by. Um, but Jannie, who has always been more wise and faithful than me, said, hey, I, we, should, we should tithe. And my first thought was one of control. My thought was, hey, that's my money, right? We barely have enough of it, so we're going to keep it. And, and then I started to think about, think of all the things that we could buy with that money, like groceries and heat for our apartment. We lived in Colorado. It was freezing. Um, We did barely had enough. But what happens is, slowly but surely, and I'm not saying that we're perfect in this or any other area, but slowly but surely, as you learn to sit down into the truth of God's Word, you see that He catches you in that. And then years later, when the amount's a little bit bigger, you're used to God catching you, and you can trust that His Word is true through simple little steps of obedience. And Solomon took his eyes off the ball on those kind of things. A a third area that J.D. Greer brought up was this area of forgiveness. And he says, you know, again, the Bible teaches us pretty clear, God's forgiven you a lot. God doesn't hold a grudge against you, right? God forgives you, so can you open your heart to forgive someone else? In fact, we're commanded to do that. But we say, well, if I forgive that person, I'm gonna be letting them off the hook, and it's da-da-da-da-da. And, and so we don't do what we know to be true. And so whatever area of obedience that you choose to ignore, and you know it could be any of these different things or, or maybe more, it's like we say, okay, God, I know what you say is right, but I'm going to do it my way. And then we stand back and we say, why isn't God blessing me? Why are my relationships? God, why aren't you blessing my relationships? Why aren't you blessing my finances? Why do I never have peace like I hear You promise in your word. And I'm not saying that to be judgmental or anything. I just want to acknowledge that if we don't have the faith to fully trust God's promises and and move in those directions, how can we expect expect God to just blindly bless us when we don't do the things that he asks? Essentially, that would be to, to mock what God has said. And the Bible very clearly says God will not be mocked. But here is the good news, and I've kind of already alluded to it. Once you take those steps and you're faithful, once you say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you in this small thing, and you find out that he catches you, the next time you do it, it's a little bit easier. And the next time you do it, it's even a little bit easier. And before long, God's word and his law begins to come apart part of who you are. And then Jesus says it like this, I've come that you might have abundant life. And that's what we find when we live in God's will and God's word like that. Solomon took his eyes off the ball. And so it was, yeah, it was, the, it was the gold. It was the girls. It was the glory. It was all of those things. Those were the temptations that Solomon gave into. But at the core of that was a failure to trust that what God says is true. Second thing we see that brings a good man or a good woman down is a good man is brought down by ungodly influences, by ungodly influences. So if you look at verse 2, I'm not going to read it, but if you look at verse 2, it tells us that Solomon grew attached to all of these foreign wives that began to turn his heart away. Now, I want to say something clear, because or say something here, because uh, sometimes God gets accused, especially in the Old Testament, of being racist, because people will say, well, God's so strong about, you know, don't mingle or, or intermarry with the other tribes and all those kind of things, and so God must be racist. God is not racist. God made each and every tribe. God loves each and every nation and each one of those things. But God is very clear that it's not about a race thing, but it's about a, be- a belief thing. It's about not having a different race, but having a different God. And so he's very strong about that. He he says, I don't want you to to, to get involved or be influenced by something that is going to pull you away from me. And so that brings us to the next question. What are the things, what are the people, what are the things that are influencing me the most? What are the, the biggest influences in my life? And are they pointing me toward Christ or away from Christ this is another one where it wasn't an, a wisdom issue for Solomon. Solomon says the right thing about this. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed, right? Or, or will suffer um, harm. So again, I ask you, who are your companions? Maybe a better way to ask that is, is what are the things that are influencing you? Because it's not that you can never have non-Christian friends. That's absolutely not true. We should be influencing and encouraging and pointing other people towards Christ. We should be right in there with with all people. But when it comes to influence, what are the things that are influencing me? And for a lot of us, it may not even necessarily be a, a real person. Maybe it is a person or a friend or something like that, but think about social media these days, and I'm not trying to hammer on the internet or social media or anything like that, but the people that have the most followers on social media, what are they called? They're influencers, right? Why? Because they influence people. And can I tell you something about the algorithm of your social media? So the way it works is those things are put in front of us, and the things that are put in front of us are not the things that are their deepest concern is to point us to Christ or to make us more faithful to God. The things that are put in front of us are the things that are going to stir us up, the things that are going to agitate us, the things that are going to want us to click on it one more time and click on it one more time. The things that are put in front of you that we are allowing to influence our life are not the things that have our best interest in mind and certainly don't have Christ's best interest in mind. In fact, I, I want to just share kind of a, a deep concern that I've had for the, the church for a while now. And it's in the area of, of discipleship. And I, when I say the church, certainly this church, but I'm talking about just kind of the, the global church these days. And it has to do with the area of discipleship. Because when you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, what you're saying is, I want to be a, a disciple of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus not only learned about him, but they, the disciples wanted to act like him right? To love like him, to serve like him, to think like him, to be pure like him, to do all of those things. And and so, you know, we want to be disciples. And so you think, okay, so what am I doing to become more of a disciple of Jesus? And, you know, okay, I go to church, and that's awesome. I'm so glad we're at church today. And and so I give an hour and Fifteen minutes, you know, each week to go to church—that's awesome. Maybe I'm in a, a Bible study, and I spend even an hour of that, or you know, I crack my Bible a couple times a week. And so, you know, I put all this together is it maybe a few hours a week that I allow to to be influenced towards being a disciple of Jesus. And then I pour over and I flood my mind and my heart with all kinds of things that aren't calling me towards God, right? Whether it's social media or it's my favorite podcast or it's my favorite news channel. And can I just say again, your favorite news channel, your favorite podcast, its deepest concern is not that you would grow as a disciple of Jesus. News is designed to make us upset. It's designed to make us angry. It's designed to be volatile. It's not designed to bring about the fruits of God's Spirit in our life and point us towards Christ. In fact, if I could just be honest, I think one of the greatest tragedies of this pandemic is that in these difficult times, they have revealed something in the American church. And what it's revealed, rather than, you know, revealing strength, hard times, I think, has revealed kind of a lack of maturity a lack of love and wisdom that I believe is in large part because we have allowed the greatest influences in our life not to be God's word and God's truth. We've allowed the greatest influences in our life to be things that pull us away, not point us, toward, point us towards Christ. Sometimes they're things that are masquerading as Christianity, but they're not inspiring a deeper discipleship of Jesus where my life looks more like Christ and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to measure the things that are influencing your life, measure them by the fruits of the Spirit. After I pay attention to this or spend time with that person or listen to that podcast, am I more filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, or is it something else? The outside voices that Solomon allowed into his life were a huge part of the things that brought that good man down. And they are, will still do that for us today. So a good man is brought down by a disbelief in God's promises. Uh, a good man is brought down or a woman is brought down by ungodly influences. And the last thing is a good man is brought down not all at once, but slowly by degrees. So if you've been following along in this series in, um, in, on Solomon, This is our fourth week. Uh, Steve is going to do a a message next week on Ecclesiastes, some of Solomon's teaching. But what we've seen for these first three weeks is how wise Solomon is and how successful Solomon is. So when you come to chapter 11, it's almost a little surprising. Like, hey, where did this come from? What What happened there? but we actually see that the author of Kings has been reminding us all along of these little unfaithfulnesses. That's one of the reasons it's so interesting that the specifics in Deuteronomy 17 are the specifics that we see in in Kings. They got the horses in Egypt. He accumulated many wives, like the very things. But all along in the story and the narrative of Solomon, in 1 Kings 2, you see one of the first things that Solomon does in his reign is he kills off his rivals. And then you get to 1 Kings chapter three and his first marriage is to an Egyptian princess and he starts to make offerings at the the high places. And then you get to 1 Kings six and it's great, but it takes him seven years to construct the temple for God. Seven years and it's amazing. Very next chapter, he constructs his palace. It takes Solomon 13 years to build his own place. Seven years to build God's house, 13 years to build my place. And so you begin to see some of the, the way things are going. Along the way, he makes slaves of people from the other nations around him. He brutally overtacks and, and forcefully overworks his own people as well. Now, on the one hand, I, I read that and I think about all those character flaws in Solomon and I think, in, in a way, it's hopeful, right? Because God can use even a, you know, knucklehead, sinful guy like, like Solomon. if There's hope for, you know, a guy like me as well. But what we see instead is that all along, Solomon sowed the seeds of destruction with small compromises and one disobedient act after another until eventually what happens, his heart is led astray. It says time and time again, his heart was led astray. You see, the greatest moral catastrophes don't usually happen suddenly. They happen slowly over time, drip by drip by drip, one disobedience after another. That's why I love the, the quote from the old Puritan, uh, Jonathan Owens. He says, you always must be killing sin in your life. You always, every day, got to be killing sin. Because if you're not killing sin, soon it will be killing you. And that's what we see in Solomon's life. In fact, he, uh, uh, he wrote one of my life verses. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon wrote this. He says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And yet while well, he wrote those words down, again, he lacked what it take to live those things out and to put it into action. And the reality is a lot of that fell apart when things were going good in his life. They were successful. They were growing. The nation was strong. And yet he left his heart unguarded, and the rest is history. And so as we wrap up this part of our study of Solomon, I want to ask some, the, the question, what are some of the lessons? What are the, the, the so what's? What are the takeaways from kind of these four weeks that we've been studying Solomon together? And i want to just suggest two of them. Um, the first one is something we've talked about several times already today. Uh, a study of Solomon shows us that wisdom by itself is not enough. Just having knowledge is not enough. For three weeks now, we've been talking about how wise he was, and it's true. His writings have endured as the foundation of wisdom for 3,000 years, right? For 3,000 years, people have been pointing to the words of Solomon as the wisdom literature. But friends, wisdom without obedience isn't really wisdom at all. I would say for the vast majority of us, our biggest problem is not more knowledge or more information. As I said, it's the courage the fortitude the faith the humility the willingness to get help to do the things that we obey what we already know to be true to sit down in the chair and let it catch you second lesson is this when you study the life of solomon one of the things that it shows us like any old testament character is it shows us that our real need our real need is not a teaching king but we need a suffering servant we need a suffering savior You see, the same thing is true when we studied Solomon's father, David, last year. Remember last year, we talked about all these great things that that David did, and he was so heroic, and he was so brave, and he was so strong. He was a great king. But when it comes to the end of David's life, what do we see? We see that he falls short, and we see just this deep need for a truer and a greater king than even David. David's known as the greatest king in the Bible right? But, but you come to the end and you're like, no, we need someone better, truer, stronger, more faithful, more lasting than even David. And so the story goes like this. God comes to David and he says, David, there will be a king from your line. And there will be someone who comes from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah, that will one day be that truer and greater king that you really need. And everyone, everyone thought that that would be David's son, Solomon. And for a few moments, it's true. But then you come to the end of Solomon's life, and you, you see even his wisdom's not enough. You need someone truer, wiser, greater than Solomon. And for 900 years, people didn't know what to do. And then someone from the house of David, someone from the line of Judah, is born. And nobody recognizes him as a king. Because he's not born into a palace He's born in a, a stable, and he comes in humility, not with gold and girls and glory. He comes in humility. And this one, Jesus, grows up, and he's known for his wisdom. I mean, people say, man, he's got the wisdom of Solomon. You know, we've never heard someone teach like this. We've never heard with someone with such a, a, authority. But even his teaching is not enough. And Jesus heals and, and does all of these miracles. And he helps people in their, their sicknesses and their mental crises and their spiritual things. And as great as that is, being a, a terrific healer is not enough because we need more than a teacher. We need more than a healer. We need a savior because that sin in Solomon is inside all of us. And we need someone to not only make us a little better and help us do things a little bit better, we need someone to make us new to make us a brand new creation. And that's what Jesus does when he lays down his life for us so that we could be in a right relationship, a new relationship with God. And he does it out of deep love for you and me. Amen. Father, with the promises of your word, thank you, Lord, that you give us the the bravery and you call us out, Lord, to be faithful to those. Make it ever true of each and every one of us, Lord, as we walk in the goodness and the power of our risen Savior Jesus. Amen.